Yeah. This, we're on. Hello. My name's Darren, if you haven't met me. As we like to say around here, it's also Darren, if you have met me. It's an old classic. Uh, I like Christmas. Um, we've sung a few songs this morning already, and we've sung about Christmas, and we've sung about light. That's a big theme for us as we go into this Christmas season. We're entering a mini-series based on the Gospel of John, and a big theme is light. Um, a question for maybe the kids in the room or the big kids, how many sleeps until Christmas is it now? Does anyone know? Nine. Nine. I think you're close. Who agrees with nine or who wants to change the number? Eight. I think Sammy might be right. So it's eight sleeps until Christmas. It's a very exciting time of year for some of us. For others, we're a little more grinchy in our approach to Christmas. We're not sure about the carols in the shops for so long. Uh, we're not sure about the uh, consumerism of it all. But I'm hoping by the end of today, as we start our series in John, that you'll be slightly less grinchy, if that's your approach. And if you are excited about Christmas, I hope you are even more excited for all the right reasons. I like Christmas lights, and it's one of the um, traditions of Christmas I really like. Some of the carols I can take or leave, that'd be okay. But the lights I really like. It gets dark, there's contrast and there's movement. And it's great just to move around the neighbourhood in the car and see what everyone's been doing, putting up crazy lights. Or to go to somewhere like Westminster. I don't know if they still do their light show, but I used to love to go to Westminster and see that. And one of my Christmas memories I really enjoy is when we took Ezra as a very young child uh, to the Westminster lights and he would just get up close and stare at these big green baubles with his little Santa hat on. So it holds uh, precious memories for me throughout my life, but especially as my kids came to enjoy lights as well. Um, and John takes a very different approach to introducing uh, Jesus to us. So you might remember in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they start with genealogy. So you come to understand where Jesus' family comes from and what brings him to us. Well, John takes a very different approach. John, the Gospel of John... Uh, has like an origin story of a different kind, one that would really challenge your thinking. And Elspeth has just read for us those first words of the Gospel of John. And the very first phrase says, for Hebrew readers of the Bible, in the beginning. And for them, as readers of the Hebrew Bible, that would spark a thought, wouldn't it? And some of you read the Hebrew Bible, because that's at the front of our Bible, isn't it? Um, and those words, in the beginning, you think, I've heard those. They were way back on page one when it says, in the beginning, God created. And so there's an echo already here in John about the origin story of this word. In the beginning was the word. And if you're a Greek reader at the time, the word uh, here is logos. And you would start to think, hang on, I've heard that word before as well. So both the Hebrews and the Greeks are paying attention, and the Greeks for a different reason, because to them, logos was about a philosophical concept they'd been debating for a long time for the history buffs amongst us. It was uh, Heraclitus, about 500 years before the time of Christ, that started this concept and talking about this concept of logos. And it's this idea is the universe must be intelligible. There must be some logic behind it. There must be a force behind the universe that we can discover and it will tell us more about why we're here. 
and why things are the way they are. So already, we should be paying attention in this very first phrase, in the beginning was the Word. But John then starts to fill in the gaps and the details. And he says, and the Word was with God. And so, we come to think, this Word, what is it? Well, it's at the beginning. When the beginning was, the Word was already there. That's an interesting thing to hold in our minds. And as the Word was there in the beginning, the Word was with God, alongside God, it seems. But the very next phrase is said, and the Word was God. Okay, so our minds start to bend a little bit because the Word was with God. There's an element of separation and the Word was God. There's an element of togetherness. And as we weave these things together and draw these clues together, we start to understand that God is three persons in one. We get this idea of the Trinity coming through just in hints here, don't we? The Word and God. The Word with God and the Word being God, in essence. So John is telling us some very mind-bending things already in his introduction here. Forget the family trees in Matthew and Luke. We're getting deep and philosophical. We're answering deep questions of life and the universe. So tell us more about this word. Is, is it a thing? What is it? Well, in verse 2, we see the word was a person. He, he was with God in the beginning. So it's a beautiful little piece of almost poetry and philosophy combining here. Some commentators think there may even be an essence of an ancient hymn coming through here that John is riffing on. And you see that in the beginning was the word at the start. And then he fills in the details of with God and was God. And then at the end again, there's another line. He was with God in the beginning. A beautiful little structure. We start to understand this word. We start to understand that we don't understand. He was with God in the beginning. So... We understand from this idea that he, this personal being, was not, as Heraclitus thought, a force of nature or a rational set of rules and logic to understand the universe. The underlying truth behind all we see and feel and do around us is this one, the Word. And John would go on further to explain that. He says he's with God. If you were to Take a sneak peek and jump right ahead to John chapter 17. You can have a look in verse 24. What's interesting is that Jesus prays for his disciples. He's praying to God the Father. And he says there, he says these words, very interesting. You loved me before the foundation of the world. So not only is the word with God, not only is the word God himself, the way the word and what we come to know as the Father are relating to each other, is in a relationship of love. Isn't that fascinating, what we're discovering about God within two verses? God is eternal, God is personal, and God is others-centred in love. We're learning so much about how we got here. This is important to us because I think it's Tim Keller that talks about the idea that We're in a lot of trouble if God needs us. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to complete Him. 
like Jerry Maguire needed to say to someone else, you complete me. We like to riff on that, don't we, and make a bit of a joke about you complete me. God doesn't need to look at us and say, you complete me. So now I have someone to talk to and relate to. Because God, in his three persons, has always been in relationship. He's always been relating in an others-centred way. A beautiful dance, Keller calls it, of the Trinity. That should bring us some hope, even if we don't know the full picture yet. That what is behind our existence is a, is a personal being that exists in love before we ever were here. If God needed us to complete him, it puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? And so far, I don't think we're doing a great job of living up to that pressure. It's a bit like if you have kids and you failed, or you weren't failed, maybe you were just mediocre. You were mediocre as a musician, maybe you were mediocre as a, that's not direct at you, Enoch, you're very good, I would not even, no, it's off now, so we're safe. I would not even attempt to do what Enoch does and if I did his thing, I'd get excited and count the drums in at the wrong time. But maybe you're mediocre as a sports person. And if you have kids, what can happen is you start to think, maybe subconsciously, you complete me. You're going to finish what I started. And there's a lot of pressure you can put on your kid as they start the oboe or the clarinet. I don't know what, what instrument you would wish upon them. Maybe you're going to thrust a basketball or a football in their hand in the pram and they'll hopefully cling to it and learn that smell of Sharon leather. And you think, you complete me. Imagine the pressure that child would feel. Well, fortunately, what we've discovered already that God doesn't need us. He certainly doesn't need us to complete him. He's complete all by himself in the three persons of the Trinity. The beautiful dance... That is a comfort to me because, um, man, like kids trying to learn football or musical instruments, we're certainly not always performing at our best, are we? So John goes on and says, hold on, that's just verses one and two here. And the verses weren't there for John, so sentence one and two maybe. And he says, I need to explain this further for you. So hold that in your head so far. God is eternal, he's personal, and he's loving in the sense that he's others-centred. And then John goes on to say, through him, through this word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This appeals to me, this verse, because there's a lot of clarity here, just in case you were misunderstanding. All things that were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. So it becomes clear if it was made, it was the work of this word. And what's interesting is that modern cosmology actually agrees with John. They're late to the party in a sense. John's writing is preserved for us over a long period of time. But modern science now agrees that the universe is not eternal. The universe has a finite past. And there's been some good in-depth debate about this where now mathematics and philosophy agree that the universe has a finite past. And then they try and think, oh, I don't know if I entirely like where that's leading and so we need to explore other theories. But in 1929, a guy you might have heard of before, Hubble was his last name. Was it Edwin? Does that sound about right? But it's Hubble. 
He showed that light from distant galaxies is shifted to the red end of the spectrum. And that means that it seems most likely that the universe is expanding away from us. And in short, for your science lesson, for simple minds, because that's how mind-mind works, but if everything's expanding and you think, where did it come from, then at some point it wasn't expanding, was it, if you go back far enough. And even secular scientists have come to the conclusion that if you unexpand everything far enough, you pretty much, you get back to nothing. And so, where did this universe come from? And you can come up with more complex theories about maybe there's fluctuating universes that are expanding and they think we have to just bend the laws of physics for that to work. Or maybe there's a multiverse that we can't really prove, but maybe there's an almost infinite number of universes popping in and out of existence. But John says, no, you don't need to bend the laws of physics and come up with complex extra theories. You need to look at the Word. He's the one through all things were made. And what's interesting is this is not just a, a secular point of contention, where, well, where did everything come from? Some of the um, cults around us, I would call them cults, please don't send me hate mail, I'm just not sure how else to describe you when you don't believe Jesus is God, but they would say that all other things were made by Jesus. That's a really important distinction. Often they'll try and build common ground and say, we believe much of the same thing, we're reading a very similar Bible. But I had a long conversation with a member of a group on my driveway and my, life, my, my wife was very long-suffering as she took the kids about the rest of the day while I was still there on the driveway and they came back from going to the shops. And I, had, I came to the verse, we'd, often with this group you'll get into a debate about John chapter 1 and you, they'll want to talk about Greek and both you and them know just enough Greek for it to be really confusing and dangerous. But I said to him, I, we don't need to discuss the Greek, we can get down to verse 3 and we see that through him, this word, all things were made. And he goes, yeah, all the other things were made, that's right, because he's the firstborn of all creation. And that, he's quoting from Colossians 1, 16 to 17. Um, well, it's actually verse 15. But if you read verse 16, just let the next verse explain the verse prior and you'll solve a lot of your problems in your Bible reading. And in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says this, for by him, this is Paul writing, and it sounds a lot like John, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, just in case you're wondering the scope, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Beautiful. So here we see the universe is not eternal, it had a finite past and it needed the Word. And the beautiful thing about this person, this He being described as the Word is, our words tell us a lot about the person who's communicating, doesn't it? And that's what the Word does for us. John says you need to look at the Word because if you want to know God, you need to look about how He communicates. And our words share a little bit about us each time we talk. And God is sharing of Himself when He gives us this person, the Word. So, 
it's fascinating for us to think through that even modern science is answered in John's writing here. All things were made through him. This first cause is personal. This first, per- this first cause is beginningless, causeless. It's an unembodied mind. It is God, the Spirit. And as John would say, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. So here we've already discovered much about our origins and who this Word is. But what was His purpose? Well, verse 4 would go on to say that in Him, in the Word, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, I've, I've already shared about my mixed relationship with Christmas carols, but there are some that I can tolerate um, and maybe even enjoy. So I'm going to test your knowledge of Christmas carols here, and there's no prize for this other than feeling proud of yourself. From which carol does this line originate? Light and life to all he brings. Who's going to call that out for me? Do you know where that comes from? Hark the herald angels sing, exactly. Sounds a lot like um, John, doesn't it? Light and life to all he brings. Read verse 4 with me. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And it's interesting, this life, it really describes all aspects of life, doesn't it? It's already talked about his creative powers, which brought about our physical life. We've already seen that life was already there with God, buzzing in communication with himself in love. So the richness of life. We also know that, as John will contrast this idea with darkness, that there's moral life here found in this person, the Word. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Why do we need light? I've, um, I haven't been in many fancy caves, so I don't like caves that much. Um, and often they have spotlights in them, so you can see all the cool stalactites and the stalagmites. And I've been in the Narracourt Caves, and at one point in our tour, I don't know if they do this in every tour, or they just understand my fears of claustrophobia and darkness, but they turn the lights off, and it gets very dark when you're a long way underground, and you can't see a thing. But what's interesting is even the smallest light source makes a difference. If someone's phone, if their Apple phone goes off, Peter's got an Apple Watch, it's probably got a special antenna for cave tours, and he gets a message, it would light up the cave, everyone would know that you're distracting the tour. Even the smallest amount of light will penetrate the darkness. And light illuminates, it makes clear what's going on. So in this person the word is life, and this life that we see, this rich life, where we understand our existence, where we understand our relationships with one another, where we understand our moral duties that come from God's character. This is all illuminated. This all becomes clear in this person, the Word. And what I love, probably my favourite verse in this passage, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is both a line of hope but also a reality check for us in any season, even during the Christmas season. And the reason for that is um, we understand that we need illumination when we see the depth of darkness around us. And you can find plenty of sources of darkness where the light seems to have receded from that place. You can look in your history books and you can see plenty of darkness. You can see in the 20th century alone plenty of instances where people have thought, we understand life, we make the rules, and if we wish to marginalise a group of people because of the way they look, or the way they function, then we get to determine who really has life. And we can exterminate those that we choose to. We've seen great darkness in history. You just read your textbooks in the 20th century, you can find multiple instances of terrifying darkness. Where people you would have thought highly rational, intellectual, would logic their way to a point that allows them to do horrifying acts of darkness. You can even look a little closer around yourself in time, even maybe neighbourhood, and you'll see darkness seems to be encroaching. Darkness seems to be around us in the way that we deal with each other as neighbours in our communities. There are acts of great darkness. The way we treat children in our communities at times reveals a great darkness of the heart. But I think we can also, if we're self-reflective this morning, we can also see that in ourselves there is darkness. There is not another centeredness that is described in the Word's relationship with the Father. There is a self-centeredness. There is a black hole of self-centeredness and darkness. That is if we're truly self-reflective. We'd love to order life in the way that best suits us. Well, I certainly do, many, many times. And I'm less concerned with how that impacts other people as I am about how it impacts me. And when we take that and draw that out and let that darkness spread, it results in the darkness we see in communities where people are conflicting, contesting. We see that in world events, when groups of people come to power and lead from a place of darkness, from a place of the black hole of selfishness. And like a black hole, no matter how many things you shovel in to the darkness, it is never satisfied. But the beautiful thing here is this word who is life, his light is not extinguished. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we can say and will not overcome it. So both words of hope here and a challenge for us. 
So the Word has come into the, the world, and we'll see that in the following part of our series next week. The Word becomes flesh. Oh, wow. And dwells among us. That's what we'll see. So we start to think, well, what does it mean for me and my darkness? Do I need to do something different? And John is enticing you to read the whole story of Jesus. And in the end, he says, I've written these things that you might believe. And that by believing, you might have life. So it challenged us to think, what do I need to do? Well, we certainly need to at least get to John chapter 3, one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament, where we see that Christ died for us, in essence. That's, that's the summation of the story. So he might take our darkness and give us a chance again at light and living life in all its fullness, where we relate to each other and God in an other-centred way, even while darkness is on the fringes at this time. And so we're in a time at the moment where God is giving everyone a chance to come to the light. And oftentimes we don't come to the light because we enjoy the darkness. But we're in a season where God is inviting us. That's the beauty of Christmas, is we can remind ourselves that God has reached out to us, become one of us, to communicate to us in this word. And it's kind of sobering to think about the implications of verse 5. Because Revelation is written by this same John who writes the Gospel of John, as far as I understand anyway. And it's no coincidence then that we would find a reference to the Word. But it's an entirely different perspective on the Word. Let me read you a section from Revelation 19. This book is about the culmination of all things, how Jesus will not let the darkness overcome. And John writes in chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, about someone called the Word. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. His rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh... He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in this phase that we're in, where we've seen the Word become flesh, we hear John writing about it, we're in a phase where God invites people to turn to Him, away from darkness towards light. But He's not going to ignore darkness for all time. There's coming a time when He will deal ultimately with darkness he will judge that it's part of his character. He does not let darkness slide. He does not let evil slide. He is coming to return and judge. And as the verse we talked about, 
He comes in justice. It is not vengeance and revenge, it is justice where He sets all things right. And those that want to stay in darkness finally are crushed and put away. So there is hope for even those that in this life experience great darkness and are pushed aside. Those that are exterminated even can have hope in the God who brings light and who will bring justice. This is the big picture story of why Christmas is so hopeful. This is why we can sing with joy, light and life to all He brings. I hope this Christmas season, when you see Christmas lights, maybe you're going to go tour a neighbourhood with many lights up, maybe you're going to put your own Christmas tree up or it's already up, but I want you to remember Jesus, the Word as the light, the Word which explains who God is, the Word who invites us in to that relationship that was already existing. I hope that we would accept that for ourselves, embrace the light that God might transform us with new life as He has promised. I'm going to pray for us as we close. Father God, we just give you thanks that you have sent your Son, the Word, to become flesh and dwell amongst us. We thank for the hope this offers, that you do all the work to reach us, to cleanse us from our darkness, to bring us into light, to bring us into new life. We ask that you would help us turn away from the darkness that we sense within us, that selfishness that emanates, that manifests in so many ways. We ask that you would draw us into your relationship deeper so that we might be changed. We ask that this light would shine forth from our lives, in our families, in this church, into a community that needs light and hope. We pray that people would hear this message this season and come to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.